Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. This is Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh eyes, and Scott is our veteran Trek fan. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 26, The Gem Hadar. The season finale. We have made it. And to help us talk about this episode... Historian Dr. James Robinson has returned. Welcome. Hello. In Star Trek parlance, we could say you're a recurring guest. <laughs> uh, I hope to reach a Garrick-like um, uh, following. <laughs> so since you've been re-watching DS9 again because of SDS9, what number watch are you on now? Oh, Lord. Uh... I have watched it four times straight around. This would be the fifth time, (laughs) which is a little embarrassing. I should probably watch other shows. Do you notice new things every time you watch? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm on number four, so it's good. Do your readings of DS9 change as your politics evolve or as the world keeps changing? 1,000%. There's different points of emphasis that I, of things I'm noticing than maybe in previous iterations. Yeah, I mean the level of detail is just it's it's thick. So um, things I pick up on I wouldn't have when I was younger. Yeah, the first time I watched Deep Space Nine, I was 14 and apolitical. The second time I watched it, I was in my mid-twenties, and more political, but not strong in my views. 
The third time I rewatched Deep Space Nine was two years ago as a as an activity for me and a friend to do together during quarantine. We would watch certain episodes together and talk about it. And at that point, my leftism was really forming. Well, no, it was formed, but I was so I I couldn't help but watch the show from my perspectives and my lenses. And now, where I'm watching every single episode on my fourth rewatch, um, and writing about every single episode, I'm definitely my lens has just changed for so many reasons, specifically political, but also on an enjoyment level. I'm enjoying episodes that I wouldn't have even thought about. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Um, I probably this episode that we're going to talk about. I probably. I, I always thought it was pretty uh, campy and, and silly, but doing the rewatch for this, I actually picked up, I actually enjoyed it more than I I previously had. You know, beyond the, like, camping turns into intergalactic incident vibe of the episode. <laughs> Literally was campy because they were camping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> I guess that's the good point, though, that Scott brought up. because you automatically have a different read of something when you watch it again as an adult compared to when you first watched it as a teenager or even younger. Sometimes you watch a movie again as an adult and you're like, whoa, this is way different from my reading of this when I watched it as a kid. And then watching it for this is also different when you're like watching it from the lens of I need to discuss this. Yeah. (laughs) James, out of the first two seasons, because you just rewatched it again, because you're following along with us. Which is your least favorite episode? Uh, I mean, it, oh God, what is that episode called where they play the, the board game? <laughs> <laughs> Move along home? Yeah, that's still going to be the worst for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so shitty. Because <laughs> something Scott and I talk about is like the first two seasons, there's a lot of great episodes, but there are some tough middle episodes where you're just like, okay, we need to muscle through this to get to some of the more important episodes. Yeah, that's something striking to me um, in my later rewatches is I completely forgot about the shitty episodes. <laughs> and and then when I'm rewatching, I was like, oh, there's more, there's more like filler shit that they just put in there to get to the good stuff than I remembered. I think... For a lot of people, Move Along Home is their worst episode just because you can still remember it. But there's some episodes you can't even recall to say it's one of your least because it was that forgettable. Yeah, exactly. And it's probably speaks to how the new way we do television where it's only like 10 episodes of something, but it's all quality. Um, It probably speaks to the strength of that rather than getting a bunch of terrible episodes to get to the good stuff all right scott can you give us the play-by-play for this episode i sure can jake and ben talk about jake's science project that he's doing for school and he's like i want to look at the growth of a plant but ben is like jake if you could do anything scientific what would you do and jake was like i'd like to fly a runabout or visit the gamma quadrant for a planetary survey ben's like Ah, oh, bet. Let's have a camping trip. Let's hug. 
I get emotional because every time I see positive father-son uh, interaction, it does it for me. Um, Kira talks of New Bajor and offers Ben to learn about it, but you know they're just trying to go on this trip. It turns out that Jake has invited Nog to come on the trip, and Ben sort of wanted it to be a bonding experience, but sees that Jake really wants to help his friend not flunk school, and he agrees. Quark is asking Odo if Cisco has agreed to selling merchandise on the monitors of the space station. He's like, it's going to be a no for me, dog. Nog tells Quark he's going to the Gamma Quadrant. Quark has ideas. On the runabout, Nog is already being silly, but things are off to a regular start. Except Quark shows up and he insists on being a chaperone. Quark manipulates this sort of xenophobia that will come up a little bit in this episode to get on the ship. He's like, you just don't like Ferengis, and you just don't trust us, and you just have a problem with us. So he lets him in. They warp to an M-class Earth-like planet that supposedly has no humanoids, but has like some basic flora and fauna. The Ferengis are completely unimpressed. They have allergies to nature. They're just uncomfortable. Quark and Cisco talk about things in the forest, and Cisco continues to insist on not using the monitors to sell wares. Nog and Jake are checking out resources, and Cisco notes that they did a good job, and we'll have jambalaya for dinner. As we know that there's a there's a food and Louisiana style food tradition in the family, so it's awesome. They sleep under the stars, and Jake pines about better times when when their mom was around. But as that happens, Quark catches fire and starts screaming that very famous Quark and Nog and Ferengi scream that I'm not going to do because I don't want to make the mic hot. (laughs) Quark hates it on the planet and says the Federation are hypocrites for treating the Ferengi poorly. And it's like, come on, just let me get this monitor. And then a being shows up out of nowhere and shoots them with light and asks where the Jem'Hadar are. What are likely to be the Jem'Hadar show up? As this happens, Nog and Jake are looking for their people and they're not there. Nog gets scared again. They see shoe tracks. Something's afoot. Literally. In a circular prison, Quark, Ben, and the other person are there. Quark is scared and yelling and trying to sell out the stranger. The stranger stops Ben from touching the lethal security barrier. She says, the Jem'Hadar are like the barrier. They are lethal. They use violence. Her name is Eris. She says the Jem'Hadar are the most dangerous people in the Dominion. Quark has been trying to start businesses with them. On Eris World, Krill, Kirill Prime, the Dominion sent in the Jem'Hadar and seized their planet because they didn't want to help the Dominion with their telekinetic abilities. Ben believes that the hubris of the Jem'Hadar will help them escape. Eris has a dampening device stopping her powers, and Ben thinks that he can get the device off. Back to Jake and Nog, they see the Jem'Hadar and strategize on what to do. Ben tries to fix Eris's device. The founders are mentioned. Ben asks to speak to the founders who lead the Dominion. The Jem'Hadar reveal that they know a lot about Starfleet, and also they have a they really want to meet the Klingons. And also the Cardassians, but mostly the Klingons. They've been gathering intel. Jake and Nog 
find Quark and Ben's signature, but can't beam them up. Jake will try to autopilot the runabout to get out of the quadrant. A Jem'Hadar man comes out of the wormhole and lands in Deep Space Nine. They explain that Cisco has been detained for exploring the Gamma Quadrant, and they have destroyed entire colonies for not respecting their space. Then we go back. Ben is trying to help Eris pick the lock, uh, so Quark decides to help. Quark talks. He talks about you know humans have done a whole lot of shit that the Fengri haven't done, like slavery and war crimes and genocide and horrors. We never did that shit, but you're still hating on us. The Deep Space Nine team tried to weaponize the runabouts to go attack the Jem'Hadar and the and get Cisco along with a Federation ship. Kira asks Odo to stay on the station, which would make a lot more sense, but Odo wants to be there to spy on Quark. He is obsessed with Quark. It's weird. On the other side, the runabout can't find anyone, except Jake and Nogger found by the Deep Space Nine squad, and they beam him up. Back down on the M-Class planet, Quark is trying to undo Eris' suppressor and finally gets it off, and Eris is doing all that energy, power, energy stuff and gets him out. The Jem'Hadar ships start attacking the Federation ships. Quark, Eris, and Ben escape and are beamed up. The Federation are able to ward off the Jem'Hadar ships until, uh, until a ship goes straight into the Odyssey, which is the Federation big ship. Uh, when they get back on Deep Space Nine, Quark realizes the collar was uh, a koi. It was not real. Eris is part of the Dominion, and she beams off. And basically, it's like, when the Dominion come, Deep Space Nine will be the first place to come, and we're going to be ready. Season over. So for those unfamiliar, James, how would you explain the Gamma Quadrant? Oh, it's this vast, uh, from the Alpha Quadrant's point of view, unexplored place um, where they don't know exactly what's there, but there's a lot of um, opportunities for, depending on which people we're talking about, profit, scientific, whatever. Uh, maybe first thing about the Bajorans, land. Uh, when we talk about that colony they set up. Um, but as we've learned more and more about the game of Quadrant, we've been getting hints at this very powerful um, power. Very, I don't know if that's a word, very powerful power. <laughs> <laughs> and an entity, uh, uh, you know, some sort of structure that is... So, Dominion, I mean, that sounds like Federation almost. But we don't know that much about even the Dominion at this point. So a lot of this is unknown. That's interesting, right? It's the new world. It's a place for opportunity. So I don't know if the writers or the people in charge of the show are trying to make that parallel, but it is kind of playing on that what's happened in our real history, but kind of inverting it in a way. And to frame the listeners, even with warp drive, the only realistic way to travel from quadrant to quadrant, or at least from alpha quadrant to gamma quadrant is the wormhole. And so DS9 being at the nexus, everything has to pass through DS9 from either direction. So DS9 is gonna be very pivotal. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, 
please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Now, James, give us your thoughts about this episode. Well, I, I had framed it a little earlier as the camping trip that turns into an intergalactic incident. Um, you know, this, this is an episode where they, they finally get into what the Dominion is, at least we get the Jem Hadar. So this episode is when empires or uh, superpowers collide. And what happens um, in the first in- hostile encounter? Um, so that's part of it. And, and this new anime is framed as very powerful. The Federation technology doesn't really work. They are not able to um, really put up a fight against the Jem'Hadar. The Galaxy-class ship is destroyed, which, you know, looks exactly like the Enterprise from um, Next Generation. So it's kind of a symbolic that, you know, maybe the Enterprise would have been destroyed by the Jem'Hadar. And the other part, so that's one part. Then the other part is this interesting sort of subplot, which I didn't totally pick up on in earlier watches of uh, this relationship between Quark and um, Commander Sisko, because Sisko is, you know, he's he's really annoyed. He wants to spend time with his kid, but he really doesn't like dealing with the Ferengi. Um, and that speech where Quark talks about, you know, we we've never been involved in slavery or genocide or war, which that you know that's a little hard for me to believe that the Ferengi would never do any of those things. Maybe not war, but a little genocide or slavery in the name of profit. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, maybe maybe they haven't been engaged in it directly. Maybe they've only been middlemen. <laughs> um, I mean, but it does speak to that there is still prejudice um, that. Cisco is trying to be this, you know, open-minded guy, but <laughs> but Quark really gets on his nerves. <laughs> He's prejudiced to him, yeah. 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 So something we learn in this episode is that the Dominion takes by force or by negotiation. And this is an interesting twist because normally in sci-fi, and I think also in Trek, the baddie trope is that they always take by force. But here, the Dominion operates much more like the real world, the world we're used to. Also, unlike previous sci-fi baddie tropes, the Dominion isn't a singular race, but an alliance. They also seem capitalistic, 
So now the Federation is seemingly at odds with an enemy that's similar to them. To your point, James, Dominion and Federation, right? There's the similarity. So it's almost like, you know, those memes about how like you see yourself versus the real you. It kind of reminds me of that, where it's like how the UN sees itself versus itself or how NATO sees itself versus itself. This is kind of like almost a mirror episode in its own way. Yeah, or the Jem'Hadar, like the U.S. military <laughs> sent to enforce the markets. Yeah, yeah. So the central theme of this episode is about borders, which seems funny enough as it is on Earth, but sounds even funnier in space. But then we have the quote-unquote explorers recognizing no borders. And when alien worlds come into contact, there's usually an asymmetry in technology. It happened on Earth and it's happening in this episode, except it's sort of the inverse of Earth because it's the quote-unquote explorers who are at a technological disadvantage. It's like, what if European so-called explorers ran into a country that was like a more advanced and militaristic version of Europe? And it's the explorers this time who are quote-unquote benign, and it's the natives who are threatening. Again, it's what you think you are versus what you are. It's typical teaching of explorers as benign versus the real explorers. What if the Europeans we learned about in class ran into the real Europeans? We can look at some examples of, of that. Um, maybe because they're encountering this, this already quite powerful on its own empire. Um, so maybe the Ottoman Empire, maybe the Chinese Empire, because these were both places that were more powerful than any of the European explorers up until the 19th century, basically. Although, you know, probably the both of them weren't particularly expansionist, although the Ottomans were at, at points. So, yeah, it is taking elements from from all these different historical sort of entities. And to something you mentioned, I liked how uh, Quark called out humans. Basically to say as bad as space baddies are, nothing compares to human history. And this connects back to something even Goldicott said. Goldicott called out human history as well. And you can only get that when you do all the different pairings DS9 does with characters. It's also a way to criticize your own history that makes sense in the context of Star Trek. So this is a part of Star Trek storytelling, and in particular, DS9 storytelling that I like, where they take up different characters that normally wouldn't necessarily spend time in a room together, and you put them in a room together, and then you have interactions you normally wouldn't expect. And then you could also use that as a plot device for the writers to make kind of like jabs and criticisms that they want to make about ourselves, right? Like point the finger back at ourselves. And it makes sense. Yeah, even though, to, to piggyback, I do think that while the Ferengi may not have owned slaves, they've definitely done work and done business with nefarious characters, would do business with nefarious characters, and would continue to do it if it meant profit. Especially they're trying to set up business with the Dominion, and the Dominion whole dominion. They they dominate. You don't think that they've had to use that sort of thing, you know? So 
It's interesting. I think literally, right, if we thought about it or dug into it, I think that is correct, right? Ferengi probably have just as much receipts. But in that scene, what I really noticed was the acting because whether that's true or not, or maybe Quark is lying, but emotionally that was true, right? The acting by Cisco, where he was like, shit, I can't disagree with you, right? We're fucked up. That look on his face. And especially I think, you know, I don't know if this is a line even like the actor was like, we should have in, or I want this line, or I like this line, but the way he sold it, because it definitely felt like this alien is telling a black person about y'all did slavery and you're acting better than me, right? So I think there was also kind of like, I don't know what the term is called, but it's, it's not necessarily like breaking the fourth wall, but it's also like kind of, you're supposed to also acknowledge the actor is black and you're saying this to a black actor. It hits you twice, right? There's another element to this that I think was purposeful because they just got that reaction from his face. He didn't have anything to say and then they cut and they left it at that. So Quark's line was the final line. So it's almost like Quark is kind of like a proxy for the writers, what they wanted to say. Right. Absolutely. There's a scene where Kira and Odo talk about saving Quark. And it's kind of a subtle all hands on deck scene because as much as they don't like him, he's still one of them. So for me watching it the first time around, and I hadn't gotten to the ending yet and I didn't know what the ending was, I already was starting to get goosebumps like, oh shit, is this like, it's us versus them kind of thing. You would only do that, right? When it's like, shit, it's bad. We got to think about every last member because we need everybody's help to survive this thing. So I thought that actually was very clever writing. And it was also to show something that Scott often talks about the character growth, right? And kind of these bonds that people have. So you also saw that over time, these characters started to like work as well. Yeah. Going back to your point on the Explorer thing, I did think that scene where the Jem'Hadar shows up in Deep, Deep Space Nine and tells them what happened, where he says, you know, you people need to stop trespassing on um, through the wormhole in our territory. And because you did that, we killed all these people. <laughs> and the, I think Dax said, like, you're never going to stop us from exploring the Game of Watchers. Like, uh, didn't they just put down a territorial claim? And you just said, we're not going to respect it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. After that moment where they're talking about Quark and having to save him, and it already felt like all hands on deck. Then we see Quark later showing some military all hands on deck skills by how he uses not only the gun, but you could tell he was comfortable with that, which seems important to foreshadow if there's going to be a war. It's kind of like we're putting together a team moment But basically here, everyone has to be on the team because the stakes are that high. So someone like Quark, who only thinks about himself, is taking a side. So you know it's going to be bad because everything you know about the character of Quark says he would only do that if the stakes were that high. And then Quark shows his allegiance later on to the team when he tells Cisco about the caller and he didn't ask for anything in return. Basically, if the Dominion is as powerful as we think they are, Quark has to ally himself with the Federation and the DS9 crew. It's a clever way to create the scale of the problem, the Dominion problem. And so I definitely felt that tension and anticipation 
for season three. Even the line about Klingons that Scott mentioned creates a sense of scale. Like how many Klingon-like groups do they already have on Team Dominion? How much scarier are they than the Klingons? That's what I was thinking. And I keep talking about DS9 going there. And they went there again with this episode. They blew up a starship, not a runabout. (laughs) Fucking starship. Me and my wife were like, holy shit, they went there. (laughs) Now, it's important to put that in the context of the time that TNG had literally just ended. Or maybe the first movie had come out where they'd blown up that starship too. Like they're sending a message there that that uh these this is gonna go way beyond anything we're used to with Star Trek and nothing is really safe, uh including your beloved galaxy class ship. <laughs> yeah. Something you mentioned, James, was about flying a ship into it. We've seen this in Star Trek before, using your ship to blow up another ship. But again, this is the inverse of the Federation because they're not doing it to save others, but to kill their enemy. And I get that Dominion are the baddies, but it does raise the moral question of sovereignty. Like the Federation found a wormhole to another territory and they're like, of course we're allowed to go. But shouldn't they have brought some ethicists to think about this? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, right? To the point that you brought up, James, where they're clearly drawing a line, like, don't do this. Don't come over here. This is our space. And they're like, no. I mean, the Bajorans even set up a colony over there without really trying to figure out, is this a good idea? Is there like a power here? Should we check in with somebody? (laughs) Hubris. Here, the natives are the baddies and the intruders are the good guys. But in the context of it being your own space, how bad are your actions? And how good are your actions if you're the intruder? It's like the inverse of the Avatar story. I haven't seen the second movie, but in the first, the Earth intruders were the baddies and the natives were fighting for their territory and sovereignty. So inverting that gets complex, especially when we already live in a world where you're taught that the indigenous quote-unquote empires were just as bad or even more quote-unquote savage. So in DS9, this is a thought experiment, but in the history classes I took, this was how history was taught. The good intruders versus the baddie natives. Oh yeah, definitely. Like when, how the Aztecs or the Incas are framed as like, you know, they're sacrificing thousands um, in religious ceremonies. It's like, well, what's going on in Europe at the same time? The, the you know the Spanish Inquisition you know all these later little later on witch burnings and now James as a historian are they starting to change how this is taught like elementary school middle school history well I can't speak to that uh, since I I deal with college history more and so I generally know what the the high school history is because I. You know, people tell me what what they're bringing in. Yeah, wouldn't they be like, oh, I've never heard this or I've already kind of heard this? Yeah, um, I think some of it has changed, but a lot of it's still pretty much how you were taught. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it with elementary and middle school it comes back to the textbooks and a lot of the textbooks are still whitewashed. And a lot of the textbooks are like determined by... Um 
Texas, isn't it? Because they're some of the biggest purchasers. Capitalism again? Yeah, yeah. I think I saw something. One of the lessons is like talking about African-American settlers is like, wait, what? <laughs> settlers? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I guess that's the thing now that they're teaching. Yeah. Instead of saying slaves, they're like, they were they were immigrants too because it's like um oh god kind of different if you love the southpaw project become one of our financial supporters it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle southpaw with our day jobs but also to expand southpaw into other areas we can't exist without your contributions Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. Something I talked to you about, James, before we got on the show was a book called The Three-Body Problem, which is a great sci-fi book. It is not Western. It's from China. And it's the first book of a series of books. DS9 came out way before this book. So it didn't posit this yet. But the book is about if you hear an alien message, should you try to answer it? It's sci-fi, but based on real history of colonization. What if you answer it and end up telling Europeans where you are? Mm. Right. <laughs> then you're bringing about your own genocide. Right. What if it's way into the future and a less advanced planet answers a message from Earth? Should that planet do that? Do we know for sure they'll be safe from us? No, yeah. we don't. Yeah. So that's why that book was like so eye-opening for people. <laughs> they never thought about that. And of course, that would only be posited from sci-fi that didn't come from the West. Right. <laughs> so from that perspective, the indigenous cultures who attacked European intruders makes more sense. It actually doesn't seem that immoral, especially knowing what we know now about what happens to indigenous people of the world. Even today, there are still indigenous tribes who don't want global north outsiders and can we blame them no we cannot yeah i think that had come up because i had i'm on currently on a facebook ban <laughs> again because, because yeah i know I, I catch them quite a bit covid and, and facebook bans i pick up a lot um but uh, i'm on a facebook ban right now because there was some article about a alien message had come in from outside of the solar state system so just in the comments section i just made an offhand comment we should nuke them and you know i was, I was just joking but the facebook fla flagged me for uh inciting hatred and violence nuking as if you had the power to nuke anyway yeah <laughs> pretty sure nuclear weapons would not reach wherever the the uh signal is coming from but then you brought up that book it's like oh this is actually a legit debate you know <laughs> And now I'm going to have to read the book. So with DS9, I don't know where this story is going to lead, but is being willing to kill yourself to kill the enemy and chase them out of your space completely unreasonable? Not from our history. Like all the pilgrims and initial settlers to North America and Columbus and so forth, if somehow they were killed as soon as they arrived, would that be wrong, right? Going back to knowing what we know now about what happens next, no. Yeah. And there was certainly instances where that did happen, where the natives had heard what had happened with the Spanish. And I'm like, OK, these people show up. You need to kill them. <laughs>
So that is something that actually happened where they heard about what happened. Oh, yeah. The Spanish had quite the bad reputation. Um, and, um, you know, places where the, the English are able to establish settlements are places where that have recently been depopulated by um, pestilence. So they're sort of moving in where the ability to resist was, um, it just wasn't there. So then putting the plot of DS9 aside and taking all this into consideration, strategically speaking, from the perspective of the preservation of your entire population, is being hostile to explorers a good idea? Yes. And like I said, it makes sense from the Western sci-fi tradition that the explorers would automatically be the good guys and the good guys would, of course, be explorers. Yeah, and, and you know, thinking about Chinese history, like the whole purpose of Europeans um, trying to get around the Americas was to get to China uh, because that was the richest um, power in the world for a very long time. That's something else that often I've heard of in history class, but also from history buffs here in the U.S., which is something like basically to say how superior Europeans are because they were less advanced, they were less wealthy, yet they were able to conquer the world. So look at basically like, look at dumbass China. They had all that money. Why didn't they want to take over the world? As if like taking over the world, conquering the world is the way to judge. It's like a weird flex, but it's something I've heard a lot. So then it makes sense that this idea would not come from the West, that the explorers are not automatically good guys. And if anything, explorers are the baddies. Because from the evidence before us, when has so-called exploration ever been a good thing for the people explored? I think even for Star Trek fans, right? Just it's an automatic assumption. Explorers good. And if it's done in space, how much harder would it be to learn about the harm? I actually don't think Earth should explore space. And because it won't be all of Earth anyway, it'll be the most powerful companies and countries, which means the West and capitalism. So the idea of space exploration sounds nice, but ultimately I think it's unethical. Not with the people who have the power to do it, doing it. And just like you think about Vietnam, Afghanistan, Korea, just from that distance and language barrier, it's so hard to get information about what really went down, space is going to be so much worse. Yeah, and in the Star Trek universe, space isn't explored by a capitalist economy. Like the Earth economies are almost totally destroyed in World War III, and then, and then when the Vulcans show up, they just totally redo the economy. So like nobody's using money anymore. And I think we've, you've you guys have talked about this pretty well. There's still as some form of class in Star Trek, but it is a different economy than what exists today. Like I said, right, the U.S. alliances think they are, and the Dominion is more like portrayed as what they really are, or the Cardassians are portrayed as what they really are. So what we're dealing with in Star Trek is like an idealized version of what we've already seen, so it should be better. Yeah, and you know, looking at what the series creators intended, they wanted the Dominion to be a sort of anti-Federation, binding the um, all these different 
aliens together through carrot and stick of uh, negotiators. Plus, if and if we can't get it through negotiation, we will send in the Jem'Hadar and take it. <laughs> it's like the Kissinger method or something. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I doubt we're going to see more of the Dominion on the show. <laughs> I think it's a one and done. Yeah, definitely. So from like an objective perspective of somebody who doesn't know, right? My initial reading, right, is like, okay, this show is going to be mainly about Bajorans and Federation versus the Cardassians, right? And then this season, they start bringing up the Dominion. So now it's up in the air, right? The way I thought the show would go because of the way they built it up, now they're giving us a swerve. So it's a nice twist, right? They know that they made initial viewers think it was going to be about the Cardassians. That's going to be the main conflict. And then they bring in the Dominion. And so now it's harder to guess, right? It's like less formulaic. Well, they just got to add stuff and keep you guessing. And it's a show. So it's still very much about Bajor and Cardassia. But now it's how does Bajor and Cardassia heal when you open up a wormhole and it turns out that there's a whole nother world out, well, galaxy out there that has their own rules. You know, playing around with quadrants is a fun little thing that Star Trek does. I mean, it does it in Voyager, in Discovery. They, instead of using quadrants, they use time. You know, play around with it a bit, you know? Careful careful what is on the other side of the abyss. Yeah, the other side of the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The real payoff for that wormhole, I feel like, is now. I thought it was just like a trading post. That was like the way the payoff seemed like for discovering it it was in season one. And now you're like, no, there's the good part of it, which is trade and power that comes with that. And then there's some other shit that you don't know about that. There's a downside to that as well. So it's like an international space station mall plus like a war military station now, right? Now, like the end of it was like, we're going to convert the Mall of America into a military base. Mm Mm-hmm. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, so now you have the Federation once Deep Space Nine. They want to have that hold. The the Bajorans have this their interest. The Cardassians want to go back in. And now we've, we're throwing in another power that wants them to stay the fuck out of their side of the neighborhood. So they would call this polarity, right? Like we have this kind of space multipolarity happening. And you don't know if they could maintain this like stable balance where you have all these different factions or does one begin to dominate? And I guess that's where the season leaves off, which is like a great way to end the season because it's kind of a cliffhanger. Well, it is a cliffhanger, but it's also an ending and it's also a setup. Yeah, I mean, the um, intentions of the Dominion is unclear at this point. Is there only real demand that they want to keep the explorers from entering their territory or do they have another way of looking at um potential threats how do you how do they deal with potential threats because we don't know what their rules are as far as like rules of engagement what's interesting also is like something we've talked about which is that this show every popular guest star of the period ends up on ds9 eventually so when we were watching this my wife was like hey i've seen her a lot before you know, when she was younger. And I was like, yeah, that's the whole thing about 
DS9 is every guest star you've ever seen on something will end up here at one point. And sometimes twice, different <laughs> characters. It happens a lot. <laughs> I'll see some of the same guest stars, but playing different alien races. Yeah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> Isn't that also true for the actor who played Quark? Didn't he come out as like different characters before in the next generation? He was a Ferengi. He was the original Ferengis. And I had completely forgotten about this. The actor who plays James Sisko, he seems to have a little bit of clout on the show. Not just as an actor, but like, you know, he directed an episode. It seems like he's already like Avery able- Brooks. Yeah, Avery Brooks. It seems to have like a little bit of say of how the show should go. Well, from Spencer for Hire. That's what I was going to say. I knew him from Spencer <laughs> for Hire. He was also the principal in American History X. He was. But that was after, right? Yes. Yeah. And yes, uh, yeah, the actor who played Quark played a bunch of people on Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I just didn't know. <laughs> yeah, so there's your point, right? <laughs> Sometimes you'll see people and you won't even know. Yeah, I mean, this this guy in particular, he really loves being part of Star Trek. He even plays a couple other characters on Deep Space Nine, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. He's not done playing different characters yet? No. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that'll be like nice little Where's Waldo? Looking for Armin <laughs> Shimmerman. Absolutely. So James, when you first watched it, you thought it was kind of campy. Then you had some different reads and like your second, third watch. Now watching it again and preparing for this discussion, what is now your current feelings about this episode? Um, I think it's it's a little jumbly. It, it, um, it definitely brings up some things they're going to expand on but this is our first glimpse this is running into the the um the stick part of it the the heel of the dominion we've only heard about the economic might but now we're running into the force where they they need to show you that they mean business and they will do it with utter brutality now, would you say this finale then is the first part of like the real DS9, the DS9 that the fans talk about? Yeah. I mean, you probably get some of that with the, the Maquis. I would agree. That's where I usually start putting the the real DS9, quote unquote, is with the Maquis on. Um, you get glimpses of it with the Bajoran Cardassian storyline. But yeah, I mean, once we get to this one, this is. This is opening up a whole another can of worms. <laughs> can of wormhole. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and Scott, what's your current reading of this episode? And has it changed over time? Has your feelings about this finale changed over time? I'm going to be honest. I've always thought that this episode was like significant. And because of its significance, I rate it a little higher than I normally would. But as an episode, it's just okay for me, though. I really do like any episodes where there is Jake and Ben relationship because I just think it's one of the best written father-son dynamics in television, especially 90s television. So that endears itself to me. So I give it a four out of five, but but it's a light four. And because of its significance in the mythology and the furthering of the show um so i really appreciated that 
Jake and Nog fucked up the runabout when they were trying to steer it and like couldn't figure it out, which makes a lot of sense because they're not trained Starfleet members as opposed to in Star Wars in the first prequel movie where Anakin accidentally steps into a fighter and then he's like accidentally wins the battle. It's like with almost no training at all. Um, so I appreciated the realism there that like it was it was funny, but it was also realistic in that if two kids were dealing with this emergency situation and were given military grade equipment, they wouldn't know <laughs> what the fuck to do. <laughs> but James, you did mention, I think, before we started recording that during the time this came out, you do remember people did not like this episode. Oh, I was talking about the Maquis. The Maquis is kind of like the entrance, the foray, as you put it, right, into the real DS9. So they're basically saying they don't like where DS9 is headed. Yeah, well, they didn't like how it got like dark and bleak. And, and there, there was backlash on this episode, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because of blowing up the Galaxy-class ship. Like a, a lot of TNG fans took that as like DS9 writers telling them, like, fuck you, especially <laughs> since the ship, ship gets blown up in the first TNG movie. They did take a, a front to it. Um, I think in the previews of the show, like they just showed the starship blowing up. You don't know it's not the Enterprise. Little bait and switch to get eyeballs <laughs> on this episode. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then Scott and James, can you give us some teasers about season three? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's it. Yes. <laughs> James? Who is this enemy? All right. Until then? Da, 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 da. <laughs>